I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I am Kingshuk Shah, a researcher at the Takshila Institution. With me is Dr. Rajiv Ranjan Chaturvedi, an associate professor affiliated with the School of Historical Studies and the inaugural coordinator of Bimstech Center of Bay of Bengal Studies at the Nalanda University. Today, we'll discuss the geopolitics of the Bay of Bengal region. Hello, Professor Chaturvedi. It's great to have you in All Things Policy. Thank you, King Suk, for having me on this show. I'm really delighted to. Uh, discussing with you a very important subject bay of bengal region yes professor chaturvedi the bay of bengal is the largest bay in the world nearly 1.7 billion people live around its coastline representing 25% of world population that means one of the four percent in the world stays in this region and a gdp of 7 trillion dollar about half of the world con- container traffic passes through this region while its port handles approximately 33% of world trade. Since ancient time, it has connected South Asia and Southeast Asia, facilitating trade, encouraging cross-pollination of culture and religion in this region. Historically, the region, due to its strategic and economic salience, was favored for regional and outside power. But after Second World War, due to changing geopolitical landscape, the region fell into negligence and decline. However, over the last decade, the Bay of Bengal is again emerging as a zone of geopolitical rivalry among major power, and regional conflict is emerging. So, Professor Chaturvedi, how do you see this emerging situation? Very good question, King Su. You know, as you very rightly said that the picture of Bay of Bengal as an expense and it's its excellent you know, connector or breeze, and it has played very, very significant role throughout the history in connecting Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean and had seen migration of people in variety of ways, either carrying ideas or trade or religion or culture, you can name it. But after, you know, India got its independence and particularly, you know, in colonial period and onwards, the attention which it should have got was very limited to the Bay of Bengal and other activities kept India busy. So we see less attention, less work, academic work on Bay of Bengal region. And in last decade or so, again, it has uh, getting primacy. The reason that there is great realization among policymakers, among academia, about importance of maritime affairs in overall progress and prosperity of the nation. And I'm not surprised that Bay of Bengal, being its uh, historical road, you know, role and also at the heart of the overall connectivity and progress and prosperity in the region, it is getting again primacy. So we need to see it into historical context as well as 
evolving and churning of activities around the bay, the countries which are residing around the bay. We need to look at political activities there, economic activities there, and the way people are going out there. So making this reason one of the most important in the Indo-Pacific. Yes, rightly said, Professor Chaturvedi. As you said about the migration, I recall from, you know, 1840 till 1940, over 28 million people have crossed the bay. It shows its importance. And now I think with the emergence of the importance of Indo-Pacific, like this region is, has increased its importance. And now with Quad at one side of China, so I'll come to the next question, like, you know, the last two decades have seen China's growing interest in the region. Like if you can talk and explain us this China's emerging yeah. interest. Before we get into China, you know, it's very interesting to see the region as, a, you know, as it is, it has played important role and it is developing again, re-emerging on the global arena and maritime aspect. So you very rightly started that this area had connected so it has if if you I, I mean you will agree with me that this area had a unique navigational network riverine as well as coastal and other connectivity which provided you know this fluvial network not only provided a distinctive environment throughout the history of Bay of Bengal region but it also linked Bengal to the larger Ganga Brahmaputra valley network on the one hand and east coast of the Bay of Bengal system on the other so that we need to remind ourselves or rather if we talk about, you know, this connected wave of shipping or variety of channels, telegraph cables and all of that. When we look at today, you have a lot of undersea cables and connectivities are there. But on the other hand, you have pictures of Bay of Bengal where, you know, many cousins, uncles, sisters, sons, they are connected from one country to other. You find connections, familial links in Myanmar, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in other countries surrounding the Bay. So those are very, very important. And even China also played an uh, important part in that, particularly 8th century onwards. After that, India-China trade connections with uh, South India, Mamallapuram played an uh, important role in that. So we need to remind ourselves about those links while assessing the you know, current geopolitical churning in the region. So your question was about growing Chinese influence. If you look at the inverted map of South Asia, you know, that Bay of Bengal region provides see access to the western part of China. So for them, the western region, which is landlocked, for them, getting connectivity to the sea is very, very important. And if we look at from Chinese perspective, their idea was to expand connectivity network and link it to the Bay of Bengal region. And then beyond that, go to the access to the sea and providing access to western so they started with Western development strategy. Here comes the main point. When we talk about connectivity, I call it politics of roots. So while you say that you have economic argument about connectivity, at the same time, you have other strategic intentions. And that's why other countries get suspicious of your intentions, particularly when you don't 
maintain transparency in your initiatives. So that's the case with China. So China has started deeper connectivity with Myanmar, with you know Thailand, with Bangladesh, with Nepal, with uh, other countries around the Bay. But those deals, what they have signed, what are the terms of agreements, and many other things are not very clear, not very transparent. So what they say, not necessarily on the ground, the situation is same. And that's why India and many other countries have little concern that what are the objective, what are the intentions? Is it purely for economic purpose? Is it to connect people, to enhance connectivity, to facilitate that? Or are there other motives? So in name of doing survey, you send sophisticated survey shapes and you collect information which may have national security implications as well. So we need to little, you know, concerned about it and monitor the activities what Chinese are doing. So at this stage, I'll say that there are growing concerns of increased Chinese involvement presence, be it in infrastructure building or collecting data from the Bay of Bengal region through research ships or otherwise uh, through military ships. That is a real concern for India. I think I rightly pointed out we should not look at, you know, the last two decades rather than the Chinese has a long history in that in this region about trade with like different kingdoms and all like traders from here and even from like that Arabian region going there and doing the trade. But that is also true if you see in the present context, like landlocked region in China, like Yunnan and Tibet, they can be connected through Myanmar to the sea. But the, again, the question arises, as you have pointed out, uh, are this benign thought on the part of China? Is it only trade? When we see that the number of PLAN, that is People Liberation Army Navy, they have making far more increasing foray into this region. That is area of a concern. Also, if you look at the Cocoa Island in Myanmar, where they have a surveillance setup that keeps a tab on what is happening in, in India's Andaman and this region. For that matter, the Eastern Navy of India. So rather than giving answer, it asks far more questions. Well, I think you are right that there is a large number of Chinese ships coming to the region. So frequency has gone up. They have more sophisticated uh, vessels, uh, which are uh, bigger concerns for us. But nonetheless, I mean, because India not only uh, advocates for uh, international law and regulations, particularly UNCLOS, but we also follow that. And we have shown through our behavior very clearly that what we say we respect our words and respect for international law is very much part of India's DNA. But, you know, as international law, wherever it will allow, Chinese ships will come. We can't stop them entering in international water. So what is the way for us? We strengthen our own capability. We strengthen our own research work, more coordination. And, you know, that's why India is now, when India was considering the subcontinent and the Bay of Bengal region or Indian Ocean, as its own area of primacy and not very comfortable in accepting major powers, including United States and other extra-regional powers in the region. 
Now you see in the change scenario, India is looking for reliable partners. So India is working with partner countries and several institutional mechanism India is taking up. India is also willing to sign up for all those treaty-based, rule-based order. That's why India is advocating for institutional buildup. And you see uh, more focus on this regional organization, BIMSTEC, where India's efforts and commitment in bringing together other partner countries around the Bay in creating institutional mechanisms so that, you know, each country, whether big in size or a small in size, they feel that we are dealing based on certain rules, certain norms. It's not that major power, big power is dictating and everything, everyone is following. So that's where we can do. And then we have research collaborations and other collaborative efforts with major powers, be it Japan or USA or other countries. So that is in some way, you know, boost confidence. At the same time, India has never closed doors for China as well. India is pretty open saying that, okay, here are the international norms, set rules, and we will welcome you if you also go by the rules. So at least there is open space where they can uh, have a dialogue on that and maritime dialogue uh, happening between these two countries may bring out something. But if we look at the current scenario, things are not very optimistic. Rather, uh, there is a deep suspicion among each other and bilateral relationship is not in a good shape. So I don't see, at least in near term or near future, that India and China are collaborating seriously in the maritime domain. Certainly, India is going to strengthen further its own uh, maritime and affairs, both institutionally as well as academically and militarily. So they are working on it. And later on, we may discuss further that how, what are different mechanisms they have set up, which is... Uh, indicating that India is now very serious about it, that unless you have a very good control, a very good mechanism to deal with maritime affairs, your progress will be, you know, affected. And the key to progress and prosperity and development goes through the maritime route. So that's where India has acknowledged and now correcting and taking several steps to rectify past mistakes. Professor Chaturbedi rightly said, but you know, to understand the present, we need to understand and appreciate the past. And if you look at this bay, so since the ancient time, you know, it has acted as a bridge of trade and cultural interaction between different civilizations. So if you can talk a bit about that, so what are the things that happen in past, be it the, we know there are a number of instances of trade, cultural interactions, and what mm-hmm. we can learn from that. You know, it's important to understand historical evolution and how this region, this water space which we are talking about today, played significant role in connecting two distinct regions. And as we grew up being a student of international relations, we were taught about South Asia, Southeast Asia, you know. So that maritime space in between was somewhere missing. Not very, it didn't get the primacy which it should have. So that was the mental map we grew up. But if we look at the history of Bay of Bengal, it was very much, and particularly after Pallavas 
And then later on, Cholas, they, the trade expedition. And along with the trade, you have series of, you know, so priests went together, so religion. Later on, you will find some people went there as a migrant worker. They work in the region, return back to their families. But not all of them. Many of them settled. And even if you go visit Southeast Asian countries, say Malay Peninsula, you will find people who went there, say, several hundreds of years ago, and they settled there. They became very much there. So if you look at the governance system, if you look at the polity, influence of Indian culture is visible even today. So very, I mean, several write-ups are there. Some research work has been done on these aspects. Scholars divide into different categories. Some divide into religious categories. So initial 7th, 8th century, up to 7th, 8th century, there were influence of Hinduism. So Hindu culture, code of conduct, various coronation and other, you know, practices. The way people were being governed here, many of those practices were adapted the way it were. Later on, under the pressure of local administration, local requirements and changes, they adjusted those practices according to their own needs. So you also see adaptation and changes in that. So localization or domestication of those practices. And later on, you see sometime, you know, backlash also saying that, no, it's we have our own culture. Because some scholars started saying that it's all India, it's all Indic culture. It's not. If we look at the history, we have flow in both the directions. So it's not that only Indians went there and they influenced culture, practices, habits, quality, governance of the countries which are other side of the bay. Rather, we also learned, we also received. So what we say, for example, idli we eat. That has, if you look at the origins of it and you are, if I am correct, you have done a lot of research on food and other aspects as well as culture also. You know it much better that how much we got connected, we learned from each other. And that's where this, you know, fusion of trade. So we received, we learned. And if you look at uh, some works, they also say that we had a coastal region, there were temples. So temples were not just for religious purposes. They were also, you know, providing a lot of other connectivity. So at temples, all merchants were gathering. They were also, it, it were working as a, also, I mean, place where bankers, traders, cultural people, all were coming together. It was a meeting point, also spreading knowledge. So we had sharing of knowledge. Knowledge bridge was also made. So history is very fascinating. And that's why when we see re-emergence of Bay of Bengal, it's not surprising because now people are digging, looking at evidences, whether archaeological evidences or life current, uh, you know, in all countries you have live examples of how much similarities. Either you have this uh, Bali Jatra or many other examples you can look at all indicate that there was a very vibrant history and connectivity and we need to revive that back. Perhaps you know, we need to bring the last mile connectivity at it used to be in the past. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. 
We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Precisely, Professor Chaturvedi, as you said about food, one is idli. Another thing that comes to my mind would be that famous that prawn curry, famous in Bengal, known as Malai curry. That is something is it comes from Malaya, that is modern day Malaysia, or for that matter, like the institution where you are, the renowned Nalanda. So it was partly funded by the Sri Bijaya Empire. So like there had been this cross culture, like trade, making people, you know know about each other culture in the process like developing the economy of all the people different region so continuing forward like i would ask you how to capitalize the economic potential of the region if you look at this region where bengal it consists of say south asia and southeast asia if you look at the southeast asia it is far more connected integrated look at the economy but when you look at south asia it is far below its potential. I think it is hardly, they are able to tap 5% of their potential. So if you can please explain about this, how we can, you know, capitalize this. Well, I think your uh, question also has answer to it. So connectivity, you use the right word. And before uh, partition, our this whole region was very much very well connected. All riverine routes as well as land routes, we were connected. And that facilitated all these movements, trade as well as uh, movement of people and other aspects. We need to bring that back, that connectivity. Work is going on. Several connectivity projects have been completed and governments are working. But because of political situation in some countries, because of some uh, geographical as well as technological constraints, uh, sometimes we see progress not up to the expected mark. But I think now government is more serious. Everyone is taking this very seriously. So there is enhanced collaborations among countries. And now connectivity has not been limited to, you know, just land or air connectivity or water connectivity. But now countries are also thinking in terms of connecting banking system, connecting educational institutions, providing platforms where artists can meet, they can talk about their issues, they can recite their poems even migrant workers. So there are institutions who are, for example, inviting migrant workers. Some of them are fantastic, you know, uh, they write poems. So recital program, you know, so that is something unique or innovative way to getting away from very traditional way, like academicians think, sit together, talk in a workshop or conference, and that's it. No, you connect people also from different walk of lives. So same way you have more uh, connections between, say, legal agencies, so Supreme Courts or courts, different legal agencies are collaborating. They are exchanging their model of working and trying to learn from each other through capacity building programs. We also have exchange of people uh, who are working in media, so journalists, be it print media or digital media or social media. They are uh, interacting or there are avenues where more interactions are being planned. So this way at that level happening. Then you have large number of people who are now using digital payment system. 
or you have uh, you know healthcare facilities so digital consultation so if you have some issues where you can have a consultation with a doctor sitting in india uh, for a patient sitting in bangladesh or say bhutan or any other country so they can virtually get connected and there are facilities being thought of to e healthcare virtual connectivity or providing ease of traveling for people who wants to have medical tourism so governments are developing medical tourism as well so many things which are happening in small steps or in different corners perhaps we need to pay more attention to capture all those developments all those steps then picture will look much bigger and you know there is a lot of dynamism same way trade you see increased number of companies are investing in the region so japanese for example have created a zone where they are investing in bangladesh and india's northeast you have indian companies like mariko they have invested in all we use parasut nare or coconut oil right you are familiar with that parasut coconut and many other products this is just one name so these aspects are required to get captured and there are some you know issues with non tariff barriers and researchers are highlighting that to policy makers they are taking steps to rectify that and i am sure that over a period of time we will have more vibrant more connected and more uh, prosperous region so carrying forward you know what are the emerging non traditional security challenge of the region now you raise very important issue because this region is less concerned about military threats we are more concerned about non traditional security threats this is particularly first most important is natural disasters so uh, this region faces a lot of cyclones and several natural disasters so we need more collaboration and capacity building in humanitarian assistance in case of any natural calamities that is one now uh, then you have series of other threats related to trafficking human trafficking drugs arms dealings and similar other threats where uh, refugees whether rohingyas we have several other similar issues which are happening then maritime terrorism is uh, another new emerging threat which is happening whether by uh, deliberate effort or other countries may uh, you know cut your undersea cable so that will affect your connectivity issues internet connectivity and many things are related to safety and security of that to secure that is becoming more important which is not direct military threat but certainly these are important aspects and if i say that now countries are more concerned about threats emerging from non traditional sources i think that will be a good representation of the region what it is today yeah rightly said you know like when we talk about non traditional security in this present context with climate change and all if you remember you know the you said about cyclone and when you talk about cyclone like there was in 1971 was bhola in bangladesh over 300000 people died so at that time it was east pakistan and it was one of the as people rightly said it was the final nail that hit the coffin of pakistan also in 2008 there was the nargis cyclone in myanmar 
I think now we have to be far more careful because it's not related to one country. And one country cannot do like there should be a more coordination and cooperation between the neighboring countries. And also you said about the humanitarian crisis emerging from the Rohingya issue in which due to in Myanmar, but the neighboring countries, Bangladesh is most hard. It also India is also drawn in it. So these need to be resolved. Absolutely. You know, transnational nature of these threats requires collaboration between countries. One nation cannot deal with challenges which are emerging today, be it refugee crisis or natural committees or many other threats we just talked about. So that's why it is imperative for all nations which are around the Bay and major powers having interest in this region need to collaborate to deal with these situations. So in this context, Professor Chaturvedi, can you tell us something about the Center for Beog Bengal Studies? Like, what are the some of the new emerging issues that you are working on? And as like Nalanda is an international university, so like what are like the regional cooperation with other countries that you are doing? If you can tell something about it. Good. Well, this uh, Center for Beog Bengal Studies at uh, Nalanda University was the idea of Honorable Prime Minister uh, Sri Narendra Modi. So with his vision, he announced this uh, at the fourth BIMSTEC summit. And it was uh, then he opted for Nalanda University. You referred to Nalanda's important role in the past. So again, I think that may be the idea. And the center was, Nalanda was chosen for this center. And I am the first coordinator of this center. My role is to not only do research, but also do a lot of coordination in terms of research activities. And this center was inaugurated last year by Secretary Sri Saurabh Kumarji. And since then, we have done a short-term program introducing Bay of Bengal, where participation of more than five countries, people showed interest, working professionals, researchers, assistant professors and many, many students also participated in that. That was a three-week program where we have resource people from different uh, important institutions covering whole range of topics from history of Bay of Bengal to connectivity, to security, to underwater domain awareness, to, you know, art, culture, archaeology. We have Blue Economy, Pimpsteak as a region, so variety of topics covered in over three weeks period, and that was very successful program. And then recently, the center has started a series of colloquium focused on BIMSTEC as a run-up event to the BIMSTEC Summit, which is scheduled in November last week, I think. So uh, we have done one on security aspect, uh, maritime security. This month we are talking about connectivity. So the form, we have speakers from uh, BIMSTEC countries. We have representation from Ministry of External Affairs. And it's a mix. The idea is to bring together, you know, people who are working on BIMSTEC, who are stakeholders, and in a free and open manner at a platform, not just to discuss the, there are two ways of, you know, one is to dissemination of information or create more awareness, informed discussion and create awareness. And for that, we have participation from all regional, you know, institutions, 
local institutions. We invite people to participate and we are very encouraged by their active participation in that. Our students, of course, participate in that. And also because policymakers are directly involved in that. So our uh, missions in uh, BIMSTEC countries and BIMSTEC missions in India, their representation also comes. They participate either in online mode or some of them manage time to visit our university. So we have a hybrid mode participation. We are also working on MOUs with uh, different institutions like Archaeological Survey of India and some international institutions as well. They have shown interest like intergovernmental organization, BOBP, Chennai-based institution, Bay of Bengal program, intergovernmental organizations. So to name a few, I mean, uh, this is a new institution here at Nalanda. So but many things already lined up. So we are doing, and this will be a regular feature, this BIMSTEC colloquium annual feature. Every year we will have this series of discussions. Also, we are going to have postdoctoral fellows at the center to work on different areas. So we will have policy oriented as well as academic research, you know, debates, discussions, as well as participants. So this is a new area which requires a lot of effort and I am doing my bit at the same. Thank you so much, Professor Chaturvedi, for your insight. And with this, we'll end today's podcast. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.